I'm Olympic and world champion diver, Laura Wilkinson, and this is the Pursuit of Gold podcast. Each week, we are unlocking the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual tools that help athletes reach their biggest goals in sports. I've had the honor of meeting a lot of amazing Olympians over the years, and I was really excited to reconnect with today's guest who I met and bonded with in a very memorable environment about 15 years ago. Carissa Gordon-Gump is a 2008 Olympian in the sport of weightlifting, and she actually made history as the first 63-kilogram American woman to qualify and compete at the Olympic Games. Carissa is a multiple-time American record holder. She's a five-time consecutive American Open champion and was a longtime resident of the U.S. Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And she's even now been inducted into the USA Weightlifting Hall of Fame. She currently serves as the executive director for the National Strength and Conditioning Association Foundation, and she's part of the United States Anti-Doping Agency Athlete Presenter Team. Carissa and I cover a lot of ground in our conversation. We talk about what it's really like to live at the Olympic Training Center, or the OTC, and why she calls it the golden prison. We dig into imposter syndrome and how even at the highest level of sport and business, it can haunt you if you let it. We also look at why weightlifting is on the chopping block for the 2028 Olympic Games. But the overwhelming message that Carissa wants athletes to take away from this episode is that your sport is not your identity. You are so much more. In just a few days, I'm bringing back my biggest, most complete program, Confident Competitor. Confident Competitor is an online step-by-step program that I created to show you how you can make the ultimate shift to knowing exactly how to confidently rise to the occasion in your biggest events. Look, I don't want to see you frustrated anymore. I don't want you continually struggling to perform well in competition or feeling uncertain of what you should be doing, second-guessing yourself. Let me help you focus on your mindset and make those necessary changes to your mental game that will improve your physical performance and begin to level up your game while also giving you more fulfillment and joy in your sport. In this program, I'm going to show you how to do things like create an entire roadmap to achieve your goal, move successfully past failure, develop routines to lower stress and anxiety, courageously face your fears. You're going to start changing the voice inside your head to one of belief, implement an effective visualization practice into your routines, and you'll be walking into your next event more confident and actually enjoying the journey once again. You're going to get 19 different lessons on mindset, mental game, and performance skills. There are worksheets of takeaways and activities to help you implement all of these new skills that you're learning. There are cool bonuses like a stay confident guide and small group coaching. And there's even a VIP option if you want more individualized support as well. You can learn more at laurawilkinson.com slash course. I don't want you to miss out on this opportunity because the doors are only open for a couple more days. So go check it out at laurawilkinson.com slash course. Make sure you smash that subscribe button and give Pursuit of Gold a five-star review. And please tell your friends, your teammates, your coaches about this podcast so that we can continue to improve and grow to that next level so we can keep bringing you more resources, tools, and inspiration. All right, I believe that there's gold in your future, so let's dive on into this episode. Carissa Gordon-Gump, welcome to the Pursuit of Gold podcast. I'm so glad we get to have a little reunion today. Yeah, it's nice to see you. Nice to talk with you again. It's been, oh gosh, probably 15 years. That is so weird. And and you got to tell our our listeners, how exactly did we meet? Because when you like reconnect and you're like, do you remember that time? I was like, yeah, oh, this is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> we met in Washington, D.C. in October of 2008 when the Olympic team goes to D.C. in the White House to meet the president. But I didn't meet you at the White House. I met you at a bar called The Pickle in (laughs) Baltimore, Maryland. And it was with some other weightlifting athletes and gymnasts, gymnasts, I think. And we were arm wrestling in a bar. (laughs) (laughs) That's right, guys. I was trying to arm wrestle the weightlifters. That's how much I think of myself. I have zero upper body strength. (laughs) Why it's so entertaining. But yeah, good memories. There are pictures out there somewhere on Facebook (laughs) that come up every year as a memory. Oh, that's Um, so funny. So yeah, there's proof that you were you were an arm wrestler. <laughs> yes, not a very good one, but I attempted. <laughs> stick with the diving. Yeah, jumping off. Yeah, thing. yep. Me, well, <laughs> me too. I'll stick to the weightlifting. Well, so Carissa, tell us a little bit about 
how your journey to weightlifting began because I don't feel like little kids start lifting heavy weights. Like, I mean, is that how it started for you or did it start somewhere else? For me, it was actually an after school intramural program. My PE teacher was the weightlifting coach at the middle school that I went to. He noticed me in PE that I was fast and explosive and suggested I try weightlifting. And I thought, okay, like, what is this? And so I went and I tried for a day. Uh, It was a gym full of prepubescent smelly boys. And I wasn't into that. I was the only girl. And so I said, no, thanks. I'm done. The next year, my mom started working at the school and he, the PE teachers started saying like, hey, your daughter's an athlete. You know, she's got untapped potential. I've got other girls in the weight room training now. And and he did. He had some girls that he took to junior national championships. One of them meddled. And so I was aware of this because there were things on the news and in the newspaper. And I saw this and I think it kind of sparked a little bit in me of, okay, like maybe I could do this. This looks fun. So in eighth grade, I went back into the weight room. There were more girls there training. It was something to do from 2.15 to 3.15 after school and take the activity bus home. I trained for two months and I qualified for my first national meet. And at that meet was about two months later, I placed second at junior nationals. Wow. So from that point on, I was kind of hooked with weightlifting. It's really cool because you can always lift more weight. There's no like, okay, poof, you've made it. You're done. There's always more weight to be lifted. And so I just kept setting the bar higher. I wanted to lift more weights. I wanted to make certain teams. After eighth grade, I kept going back to the middle school and I would train after school. Sometimes I would train before and after school. So this phase that my parents thought I was going through with this whole weightlifting thing actually really shaped the rest of my entire life as far as professionally and just, you know, my career, my family, it's been everything. And I never would have guessed that. I I didn't even think that when I started lifting, women's weightlifting wasn't even in the Olympic Games. Oh, wow. Uh, So that wasn't on my radar initially either. So So yeah, that's in a nutshell how I got into it. (laughs) I, I love it. That's great. Were you doing other sports and things at the time too, or it was just like PE no, where the coach I, saw you? I actually had never done any sports before. I was taking piano lessons on Thursdays at like 3.30 and I was like, yeah, I want to go lift weights. I don't want to play piano anymore. So I quit my piano lessons and I went and lifted weights three times a week. Oh, Wow. I love this. And you're just kind of skyrocketed right from the beginning and it like hooked you in. That's so fun. What does that journey look like for weightlifting? Because it wasn't in the Olympics. Like it's not a college sport, is it? What are your goals and how do you progress from there? Really at the time it was make a thing called the junior squad, which is where you get invited to Colorado Springs for two weeks to train at the Olympic Training Center. We had a a resident program and a, a camp program there at the time. So it was medal at junior nationals, be top 20, get invited to Colorado Springs, make junior worlds. And then when you got older, you know, progress into the senior level of things. And when I was around 18 or so, I was competing both at the junior and senior level. So I had year round competition. We didn't really have a season. Mm -hmm. So I was competing at junior worlds and senior worlds. At one time, you know, I went to like a collegiate competition as well. But really, before it was an Olympic sport, it was, you know, let's make these teams, let's set American records, let's break records. And then in 2000 was the first year for women's weightlifting to be introduced at the Olympic Games. And weirdly enough, even though 2000 was the first year, it wasn't until years later that I set my sights on the Olympics. I did think that I was at that same level, even though I was competing and doing very well. The imposter syndrome was very real. It still is very Mm -hmm. real to this day to think that I am part of history. I am part of this elite group of athletes, you know, a Team USA athlete being an Olympian and being one of, I think there's 14 female weightlifting Olympians in the United States. And for me 
to be part of that is just mind blowing because I grew up looking at my like role model in sport was Tara Knott and to be considered an Olympian and like Tara Knott and a role model, it still blows my mind that I did what I did. That's so cool. And Tara Knott won a gold medal in 2000 at that she first did, yeah. weightlifting. So she's, she's so tiny too. So little, but man, she's powerful. <laughs> yes. Yeah. She's about 108 pounds. Man, that's so cool. I love it because there's something that people, I get asked this a lot too, and I'm sure you do too. What does it feel like to be on the other side? Like you accomplish these things, you become this Olympian and it's like, you see it full circle, but you still kind of feel like the little kid on the other side, right? Like you, you get there and you recognize all that's happened. That little kid that was there, like that's still there, you know, that's always going to be there because that's how we kind of were formed, you know? And so I think that's pretty special because you can recognize it better on the backside. I don't know. That's just Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. <laughs> I, I still do see myself as, you know, that little 12 year old, like bird like little kid, you know, trying to lift weights <laughs> and yeah, it's like a, Big time imposter syndrome. <laughs> but it shouldn't be anymore. You you are there officially. So I want to know what was this journey? So it when did it finally kind of sink in? Like, I think I can try to make this Olympic team. Yeah. So it actually wasn't until about 2006. I had a shoulder injury and living at the Olympic Training Center, you're surrounded by athletes from different sports and you see athletes, unfortunately, get injured. And I knew my injury was either going to make or break me. I said, you know what? I'm, I'm not going to let this break me. I looked at some ranking lists and I was like, you know, I kind of have a shot at this. This is crazy. And so after my shoulder surgery, I made a plan and I said, I, you know, I have to do X, Y, Z. I've got to go to sports medicine. I've got to see sports psychologists, dietitian. You know, I wanted to be able to look back and say, I did everything I could. And it just wasn't, it wasn't in the cards. It wasn't my time. I trained hard. I stuck to my plan. I was incredibly intense, very, very focused and it paid off, but it really wasn't until that injury, something in me kind of flipped, like a switch flipped. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, am I playing weightlifting or am I training for the Olympics? That's when it switched. I love that. I love so much about that. And I love that your whole thought process was, you know what, like kind of whatever happens, I am going to look back and know that I did everything that I could. Because then even when you fail, you can feel good about what you did and what you put into it. And that's, I've always felt like that too. Like, I don't want to look back in five years, always going, huh, I wonder if I could have, you know, like I want to put it on the line and I may fail miserably, but like, I want to at least know that I did everything I could and, and see Absolutely. how far that gets me. I love that. I kind of want to back up a little bit because you got to live at the Olympic Training Center. Now, I've only been there like two times. And there's something about walking in that place. It's so inspiring. I mean, there's pictures everywhere. There's amazing athletes everywhere. There's food center, the workout areas, like all the things. Tell me about living at the Olympic Training Center. I want to know all the things. <laughs> yeah, it was a very easy decision for me to make in order to move there. I had been approached by the national team coach at the time. And he said, you know, we can guarantee you a spot in February of 2001. But like in June, when you graduate high school, I don't know if we're going to have anything available for you. And I said, I'll be there. And I hung so up the phone. You were still in I, high school? I was. Oh, yeah. Wow. I hung up the phone and I went out to the kitchen. My mom was doing dishes. And I said to her, I'm moving to Colorado in February. <laughs> and she's like, you're what? We need to talk about this. And I was like, I'll figure this out. I'll make it work. And so back in the day, we had correspondence courses that you could do classes through the mail. They'd send you a big fat book and like Scantron sheets. You'd fill the bubbles in. And so I did several correspondence courses to get those extra credits that I needed to graduate. I had to volunteer something like 100 or 200 hours to get like half a credit. And so I graduated with the absolute bare minimum credits <laughs> because I wanted to go and lift weights. I wanted to go to Colorado Springs. So I graduated in three and a half years and I moved out uh, February 17th of 2001. I was a resident there. I lived on campus until January of 2007, but I trained there until 2008, you know, after the Olympics. Living in that environment, it was 
one of the best times of my life. And I didn't even realize it when it was happening. Of course. I was part of an incredible, amazing program with the best women in the country, the best men in the country. We all were in, you know, the same space training all the time. The atmosphere is something that I don't know if it could ever be replicated again, but they've just absolutely incredible. And the resources that we had available to us, sports science, sports medicine, the dining hall, the you know nutrition services that we had available to us. But what also made it unique is that we were in an environment where there were other sports and other athletes around us. We had judo, taekwondo, track cycling. We had Paralympic athletes. We had camps also kind of rotating Mm -hmm. in and out. We had men's gymnastics, trampoline. And even though it was a variety of different sports, it really didn't matter because we were all there doing the same thing. We were all training to be the best that we could be, whether it was, you know, their focus making American records or going to the Olympic Games. There was just this unwritten connection that you had with people there. And I still run into, I ran into another athlete in the Chicago airport about two weeks ago. She was a wrestler. She's an Olympic medalist. And I said her name and she turned around and looked at me and we're like, oh my gosh. (laughs) And we just picked up right where we left off, you know, from 15 years ago, we talked for 20 minutes and just something like connecting with your childhood friends or like, your neighbors, kids you grew up on the street with. That's how I equivalent my relationships with people that I grew up around essentially at the training center. And again, it didn't matter. She was a wrestler. A year ago, my family and I went to Disney and we connected with someone who was a triathlete that lived there at the same time. And it's just this bond and connection that you have. And the same goes for, you know, an Olympian. Like, I know nothing about diving. (laughs) You know nothing about weightlifting, but we are just going to be friends because we trained at this intense level of sport and we experienced things that unless you were there, you went through it. Nobody else is going to get it. It's just this connection. There's a common bond there. It's a bond. Yeah. It's just this like unwritten level of respect for one another. The training center truly brought me from being a child into adulthood and really becoming an elite athlete. Mm -hmm. And again, it was something that I wish I knew in that moment, how amazing it was. I was back in Colorado Springs this past month. I, I was over at the training center walking around and, you know, I saw athletes walking around and I'm like, you have no clue how amazing this is right now. You're going to look back when you're 40 years old and think, man, that was badass. That was awesome. (laughs) I love it. Was there ever a time though? I mean, you're living there. You're not quite realizing what you're living in, how cool it is. But were there ever times even, because I'm sure it was still very motivating and all that in the moment, you know, that you seem to recognize that in the moment. But were there ever times where it just got a little stale even there? Like, you know, you've got a, a beautiful, like I live where it's very flat. But, you know, I go to these places where we see mountains and I'm like, oh, this is so gorgeous. But if I saw this every day, would I just take it for granted? You know, would it get old? Like, do you lose that motivation? Like, does it get stale? Is it easy to almost lose that spark there or not? Yeah, there is definitely the ability to get kind of complacent and comfortable, Mm -hmm. I would say. But training the way we did, you know, I think 12, 14 week cycles, like, There was always a new goal. There was always something else that we were focusing on. We joked that, you know, we called it kind of like the golden prison because... (laughs) The golden prison. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And it's weird to say that, but that's the only way that I can explain it is like we could come and go, but we had all these amazing amenities, but still on the flip side of it, you're still a person... And you have other things in life that are going on outside of the gates of the of the training center. So it was kind of hard to balance and maintain that focus. But it was also, I think, a good distraction. So you didn't become too, I guess, intense in that environment all the time because you can't go that intense for 
a quad. Like it's just physically not possible, mentally and physically not possible. Yeah. That's cool. That's cool to hear. Well, what, because you were like college age and you're starting in there. And I know like school, at least now is very important to you because I know you're going for your doctorate now. You have a master's, you have all these degrees. Did you go to school while you were living at the training center or was that after? No, I, I did, but I took like one or two classes a semester. So it took me an immensely long time to get a degree. Like I joke and say my two year took me four years. My two year transferred into my four years and that took me a couple more. And, but I knew that there's life after sport. Unfortunately, my family, we're not a very athletic family, if athletic at all, but education was very important focus. And so it was an unwritten understanding that I was going to go to college. I was not in a sport that I was making a lot of money on. I wasn't going to be like a Michael Phelps. I wasn't going to be doing endorsements. So I needed to prepare for life after sport. So that's what going to school was doing for me. So I would go to classes on days that we wouldn't train. And I would go to classes at night after training. Received my associate's degree from Pikes Peak Community College, which is now Pikes Peak State College. Then I went on to University of Colorado at Colorado Springs, and I took a couple classes in 2007 and 2008, and I actually came back early from the Olympics. So I competed August 12th, and classes started August 22nd or 23rd, and closing ceremonies were August 24th, which was also my birthday. But I knew I had to be back for class. This was the next chapter of my life. And I remember sitting in class that first day and the teacher was like, tell us something fun you did this summer. And I was like, (laughs) I went to the Olympics. And he's like, oh, cool. What'd you go to watch? And I said, I didn't go to watch. I competed. And he goes, why are you here? The Olympics are still going on. And I said, well, you don't show up for the first week of class. You get dropped. This is my new focus. And so I went from taking three credits a semester to my first full-time semester of college, taking 18 credits. I was like, all right, let's ramp it up. Let's get going on this because this is the next chapter and I need to progress. I need to move forward. I need to finish school. I need to get a job. Let's go forward with everything. So how did you make that time work while you're at the training center? And you're going to school, like, are you supported? Are you trying to also work? Like, how do you financially make that work? Because a lot of people who, you know, at least like in my experience, like a lot of divers will go to college. But then after that, if they want to keep pursuing diving, sometimes it's hard to balance working and being able to train full time and do all that. So how did you make that work? I was fortunate that I was competing at a level where I was receiving a stipend it could be $100 a month. It could have been $250. It could have been $500. For a couple of years, it was $1,000 a month. So those funds I used for training and travel. Well, not training. I used for travel because my training and my housing was all provided for by you know the Olympic Committee living at the Olympic Training Center. So that went towards my training. But I did also work part-time as well. So I recognized that, you know, there was that balance that I needed to kind of get out. So I worked part-time in various departments at the USOPC, as well as 24-hour fitness for about five years and did the classes, at least one class. So I would say it was fairly balanced between work and school and life and training. I tried to keep that so I wasn't too ingrained in just training. I think that's really smart because we were talking earlier before we started recording about how athletes can kind of get their identity just sucked into their performance or their sport. And it's a really easy thing to kind of lose who you are in that. So tell us a little bit about, is that balance kind of what helped you or did you ever have a time where you were just totally sucked in and you didn't know who you were anymore? The balance helped a little bit, but I feel like when you get to a certain, I'm not even going to say when you get to a certain part of sport, when you become an athlete, we take on this identity of the weightlifter, Carissa, or the diver, Laura. The sport becomes our identity. I see it happening with, you know, local high school star athletes, you know, oh, that's the kid that plays baseball, so-and-so. 
So it happens at every level, but I think it's really how we individually handle it. It took me a very long time after I stopped competing for people to see me as Carissa, the weightlifter, not the weightlifter Carissa. The struggle primarily was because I went into working for the USOPC and USA Weightlifting. So I was still around those people who I worked with as an athlete, who had always known me as an athlete. And that transition took a very long time for people to look at me as a professional and not, oh, Carissa, the Olympian or just the Olympian. I had an intern that I had worked with in, I think, 2016. And she came into my my office and said, why didn't you ever tell me you were an Olympian? And I said, I didn't really think it was important to tell you that. It doesn't have an impact on how I do my job or how smart I am just because I was strong and I lifted things up and I dropped them down doesn't make me qualified to do a job. I want you to recognize my value based on what I can bring to the table as far as my knowledge and my intelligence, Yeah, uh, which is also one of the motivating factors for me of seeking a degree, you know, higher education, getting a master's and a doctorate. So one day, maybe people will say, oh, did you know she was an Olympian? I don't want that to carry me through the rest of my life. I want to be able to say, no, I went to school. I've learned this. I know this. Yeah. So that's one of the main things I I would really encourage athletes to recognize is your sport. Yes, it is a, a part of who you are, but it is not you. It doesn't define who you are for the rest of your life. You have other identities as well, such as being a partner, a spouse, a child, you know, a son, daughter, an aunt, an uncle. There is more to you than diving or weightlifting. I think that's so important. So thank you for hitting that home. I want to hear about We know that in like 2006, when you had your injury, you were like, all right, the switch has been flipped. I am going to go for this team. I'm putting it all on the line. What was that journey like? Like, how do you qualify in weightlifting? Like, do you have to earn a spot for the federation? How is the qualification work? Because you guys don't have a regular trials, do you? It's changed over the years. So when I was competing, how it worked was, yes, weightlifting is an individual sport. But when we went to world championships, every athlete that competed, whatever place they scored would be equivalent to so many points. And then the points would be added up. And then if it was within a certain range, the country would earn one slot or two slots or three slots. And then a full team is four slots. And so the team that competed from 2005, six and seven at the world championships were just an amazing group of women and we were able to secure four slots for a full team. So we knew that at the end of 2007, we were going to have four women go to the Olympics. And then we had nationals, which is a secondary qualifier for the Olympics. And then we have Olympic trials, which is the primary and final qualifier. So I had a very good performance at the national championships and I was ranked number one out of all of the athletes. So it's not the top four per weight class, it's the top four women overall, regardless if you are 108 pounds or considered a super heavy at the time. So how does that work? Because does the Olympics, do they limit the weight classes or is that just from your country saying just the top four overall? Like That's the the international federation, the IOC, you know, designating how many slots were given. At that time, you know, you're competing as an individual now for that one spot. So I went into Olympic trials in the number one spot and I knew, you know, people were going to try to bump me off. There was a small likelihood, but I did get bumped from first to second, but I was still able to, to secure a spot. So I was the first woman to qualify in the 63 kilo weight class in the United States. And then at the Olympics, I did have another teammate in the same weight class who competed with me. Okay. And I was the first one of us to go out on the platform and compete in the weight class for Team USA. So first for two things, but 
We had an incredible group of women on the team that year, Natalie Wolfolk Bergener, uh, Melanie Roach, and Cheryl Hayworth, who's three-time Olympian and Olympic bronze medalist. It was just such an amazing experience. And especially because Cheryl and Natalie and I, we were all the same age. We were all born in 1983. So we grew up competing as juniors as well. We gone to camps together. We had traveled. So it was really a, a special moment and opportunity that, you know, like these three young kids who came kind of from, you know, grassroots level grew up to become, you know, Olympians. And like I said before, it's just this unwritten bond or respect that there is. You know, we may not talk to each other often, but if I picked up the phone and called, we would pick right up or, you know, if they need anything, you know, always there as as a teammate. I love that. The forever bond. What was the Olympics actually like for you? Was it everything you expected? Was it totally different? Did you feel good about it? Like walk me through just the whole experience. Yeah. The experience of the Olympics was nothing that I was even prepared for. Just the magnitude of an Olympic Games from everything with organizing committee to all the food and the dining hall, the dormitories, like they leave nothing unturned. Everything is there and provided for you. It's just an unbelievable experience as an athlete. Like I remember just getting there to the village and rolling my suitcase in. And it was kind of like this feeling of like, you know, all right, we're going to suit up. We're going to go to battle. Like, this is it. Let's do this. Just this buzz, you know, and there's thousands of athletes in the village from all these different countries. And, you know, you proudly hang up your flag in your room or you're hanging out your balcony and everybody's just so excited to be there. I remember passing other Team USA athletes because you all have the same outfitting on Mm -hmm. and just being like, what sport are you in? Where are you from? You know, do you know so-and-so? And And just an amazing, amazing experience. And you get day passes. So I was able to bring my family into the village to see it. And I remember them just walking around like their jaws just dropped. Like, yeah, the Beijing village was gorgeous. Like they, I mean, they had those ponds and statues and like, it was ridiculous. Like, cause in Athens, they were still rolling out the grass when we got there. So (laughs) Beijing was like top notch for sure. (laughs) Yeah, it was. I remember like we had the little Coca-Cola like keychain thing. Oh yeah, you got to walk up (laughs) and swipe it and like, any drink, anything you wanted. Yep. It was um, like the magic vending machine pass. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So a very, very special opportunity to be there. Team USA also had a separate training site that they utilized called Beijing Normal University. Mm-hmm. And so we would go over there and train, you know, a couple times a day. And we had a, a separate area there where we could rest. We had food provided for us there as well. So the USOPC also did a very good job of making sure that the athletes were very, very well taken care of. I have to ask, like, do you guys taper before like your big competitions? Like you have that rest period? Yeah, we do. And it's this balance, I would say, of being in the best shape of your life, but being the most exhausted that you've ever been. The timing of it, and it always happens. And I would always joke with my coach and be like, how do you do this? This happens every time. Like felt like garbage last week. And now I feel amazing. And it's like, (laughs) that's programming. And so yeah, just the timing and the tapering of everything. So you walk on stage and you're still super strong and in the best stage of your, in the best state of your you know life, but also having that energy and being like, okay, I'm in a good space. Like I feel good. That's supposed to happen. That's the yeah. magic of, of coaches and good programming. So trusting the process, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so did you perform as you had hoped on the Olympic stage? I really didn't. The last lift of my career, the last lift of my life, I actually missed. It was 121 kilos. I was going for a new American record, which would have been a really amazing way to end my career and walk off the platform and say I did. But really... I was still walking off the platform at the Olympic Games. You know, that itself is amazing. Honestly, to be at the Olympic Games, it's a very emotional experience to go through and to stand on stage and to hear your name being said 
and Team USA after it. And to see your parents in the stands, you know, I saw my parents in the stands, you know, crying. And then I look and I think, gee, I wish, you know, my sister had passed away when I was younger, thinking like, I wish my sister was here. I wish my first coach was here. It, it is an emotional roller coaster ride that also doesn't stop after the Olympics is over. You mm-hmm. go through this, probably heard it, the post-Olympic depression of, yep. okay, now what? Even though I had that plan set up of, okay, I'm going to be a college student now. Well, that's the first thing you told me when you set up 18 hours like, and you left the Olympics to start that. I was like, oh gosh, how'd that hit? <laughs> yeah. So I, I mean, I went through, I, I passed all my classes, but I was also going through you know, that transition. And I was still kind of going into the gym and dabbling a little bit with lifting. And I came back on a high, like, that was amazing. I want to do it again. I want to go to London. And I think it was in January of 2009, Let me back up. Prior to that, I had talked to one of my teammates who had retired a year or two before. And I remember calling him and saying, his name was Giff. I remember calling him saying, Giff, how did you know? I said, I go in and out of the gym. I'll go sit out on the picnic table. I'll cry. I'll say I'm going to quit. And I, I just can't do it. And he said, when you know, you know, you just have this feeling and you're like, okay, that's it. I can walk away now and you don't look back and have no regrets. And so I was in the middle of a set of squats in January of 2009. And I remember just coming out of the squat, I racked my bar and I went over to my coach at the time and I said, Hey, can I talk to you in the office? And he's like, yeah, sure. And we went into the office and I said, I'm done. He goes, (laughs) okay, cool. And I said, no, I'm done. And he's like, I get it. And fortunately for me, the coach at the time, uh, his name is Paul Fleschler. He's a 1992 Olympian. He'd been there. He'd been through that whole process himself. And so he was just the most appropriate person for me to have in my life at that time as, as a coach. And he was just totally awesome and really respectful and was like, all right. And I went back out, I unloaded my bar, I grabbed my stuff and I left. And GIF was exactly right in that moment. And to this day, I've never looked back and gone like, man, that was stupid. I should have gone to London. I should have stuck it out another four years. I've never once thought that. And that was you know, my decision. And ironically, last week, I've been doing a lot of work with becoming an athlete presenter and part of the United States Anti-Doping Agency Athlete Presenter Team. And they said, we don't have retirement paperwork on hand for you. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, because I never did it. I just, in my mind, I'm retired, but to submit that letter is like major closure. And they were like, well, you're going to need to for conflict of interest purposes. And I said, okay. So I wrote that letter last week and I submitted it to USADA and to my NGB, just declaring 15 years, uh, <laughs> you know, like, something crazy, you know, 15 years after stepping off the platform at the Olympics that I was indeed officially retired. However, it wasn't as hard as I thought it was going to be because I have this focus now on clean sport and fair play and not just for my sport, but for all sports. So that helped with that closure, make it an easier transition. And even though in my heart, I know I am not stepping back on the platform anytime soon, but having that, again, the the USADA component part of it makes it a lot easier because that is something I'm I'm very passionate about. That's cool. See, I had a totally different finality to my career because I'd never felt done and I always wanted to go back, you know, and so... I did eventually go back, you know, and and now I finally at like 45 years old and like, yeah, I'm good. <laughs> but it's the, yeah, the I remember time. seeing, you know, yeah. photos of you coming out of retirement and I was like, wow, power to her. Like she's a mom, she's got a career. Like this is just good for her. I couldn't do it, but I, I do remember seeing that. And, well, but it's funny but I because, did. because the way you talk about like, I was just done. And I'd always heard people say that. And I was always frustrated because I never felt that way because I guess I wasn't done, you know, but now I finally am like, all right, I'm good now. I'm good. And I have other things that I'm doing and I'm enjoying and it's, yeah. So that helps a lot too, but um, it it does help to be able to say, you know, okay, I can still be part of 
the Olympic and Paralympic movement. I can still be part of my sport, but just in a different way, not as an athlete, whether it's as a coach, an official, you know, an ambassador, there are roles for athletes after retirement. And then I think that's also another important message to convey is you don't just disappear. That's Mm -hmm. not good and healthy either. Right. You still need to have a little sprinkle of whatever, you know, in your life, if it's as an official or volunteering and being on a committee or on the board of directors, I think an NGB or any sport, regardless if it's a local level or collegiate level, they are always willing, you know, and having open arms to have a former athlete come and be part of what they do, because who better to hear it from than somebody who's been there and done it. And I think you kind of hit the nail on the head there is that helps the transition too. Because sometimes we're like, when we have been so intense in our sport for so long and your identity has been a little wrapped up in that, that transition can be really hard because it's like, who am I? I'm starting over. Like I was at the top, like now I'm starting over at the bottom and something. And that's really overwhelming and a whole different, you know, (laughs) set of things. But having that connection in some way, shape or form, I think helps because you are still connected to the people and the sport and the things that you love and that you were connected with. So I think that really is smart for a transitioning athlete out of sport. I've talked to athletes who say, oh, I think I'm going to do this. I think I'm going to do that. Like, you know, I think I'm going to retire. And my response is, okay, now what? What's your next plan? You may not have to go into it at the intensity that you did to train for your sport, but you still need a plan. You still need a roadmap to figure out what is next. And I'm not saying go get your master's or go get your doctorate. You still need to have a plan to make sure that you as a person are fulfilled and have some sort of direction in your Mm -hmm. life. For sure. Oh, for sure. I love that. Well, tell me a little bit about this thing you're doing as a presenter for USADA, the US Anti-Doping Agency. Is that because, I mean, I just feel like weightlifting has been infiltrated by just drug stuff. So many sports have. I know track and field's a big one too. So like, tell us a little bit about how has that affected you as an athlete or just more of the sport as a whole? And why did you decide to get involved with USADA? I think that one of the big things to point out is we have all probably been impacted by other athletes using prohibited substances in sport. I can confidently say that I have probably lost out on podium opportunities and medal opportunities because athletes that I was competing with were not playing fair, playing by the rules. You might be able to say that, you know, as well. I don't know the status with diving, but unfortunately, you know, doping issues have been very common in the sport of weightlifting. You know, I've had parents say to me, like, well, I don't want my kid to lift weights. They're just going to end up on drugs. You know, it has this really negative stereotype of being a sport that you have to use drugs to be successful in, which is not true. We're fortunate to reside in a country that has an amazing anti-doping agency called USADA, and they are committed to making sure that Olympic and Paralympic athletes at the elite level are competing clean. It's just something that I don't know how you could not get behind and want to be part of. Unfortunately, as we're talking right now, my sport is one of the contenders to be removed from the Olympic Games due to a longstanding history of doping violations. And it's very frustrating that these individuals who've decided to use doping to enhance their performance are unfortunately going to be, you know, the deciding factors of why a sport is removed from the Olympics and remove that opportunity for other athletes out there that have these dreams and aspirations of competing at the Olympics as the weightlifter. So I'm working, you know, with USADA as a part of their athlete presenter team. And I've been educated on anti-doping messaging and training to go meet with athletes in camps and go to events and work at a booth and and talk to athletes and parents and coaches about the importance, but also the 
resources that USADA provides for athletes to make sure if the athlete does decide to use a supplement, that they understand what the risks are of using a supplement, not only for their health, but for their standing as an athlete and their ability to compete, not just in their sport, but in any sport. Because if they test positive, it's not like they can say, oh, I'm going to go be a diver now, or I'm going to be a weightlifter. If you test positive, you test positive and you lose that right and the ability to go and compete because you violated the code of don't do drugs. Don't, right. right. Don't cheat. Right. <laughs> right. So weightlifting is on the chopping block for 2028. What, what does that look like? Like, are there things you guys can do to try to prevent that? Or when do they decide that? I'm not sure of the exact date when they decide that, but I know, you know, USA weightlifting in particular is one of the countries that's really trying to lead the path uh, and pave the way of here's what we can do to ensure this does not continue to happen. USA Weightlifting recently hired a new executive director. His name is Matt Sicchio, and he came from USADA. He was their chief operating officer. And so Matt is very well versed in the world of clean sports. So he brings a tremendous value, not only to USA Weightlifting, but also to the International Weightlifting Federation. But it also sends a message to the rest of the world that the United States, we don't stand for doping. We want clean sport. So again, I I know my NGB in the US is, is doing their part in sending a message to the rest of the world where we stand and that's for clean sport. Well, hopefully it will be a good outcome. <laughs> we don't want to lose weightlifting. I hope yeah. so. I feel like weightlifting is just like, it's one of the original sports. You know what I mean? Like it would be crazy if it was not in the Olympics. It is. It's one of the original, you know, modern day sports from 1896. And we've yeah. always competed and, you know, 2000 women's weightlifting started. And yeah, it would be an absolute shame. But unfortunately, the history and the track record and the data speaks yeah. for itself. Let's shift a little bit and tell us about your current position. You're serving as executive director for the National Strength and Conditioning Association Foundation. So tell us a little bit about that. You're doing a lot of cool things, but tell yeah, us about this new, yeah. I, new role. I just, I love what I do. So I had worked for USA Weightlifting for about six years and I made the transition about six and a half years over to the National Strength and Conditioning Association's foundation. And we are basically, I like to say, like the science behind strength and conditioning. So the NSCA, in short, that's our acronym, NSCA, um, we provide certifications for strength and conditioning professionals, for certified personal trainers, tactical coaches, which means military, fire, police, our most well-recognized certification is called a CSCS. It's a certified strength and conditioning specialist, which a lot of colleges and pro sports teams require it if you want to work as a strength and conditioning coach. And then we also have a sport scientist certification as well. So again, kind of the science and the reason behind strength and conditioning and why coaches do what they do. We have a strong crossover, I would say, with the coaches from USA Weightlifting. So it was a very easy transition. But then I was combating the, well, who do you work for? Why are you here? And are you lifting? And But people know who I am and what I do now because I've, I've been there long enough. So with the foundation, we are really the philanthropic arm of the association. So we give away scholarships grants and assistantships. So I get to, I say, I'm kind of like the Oprah, you know, you get a scholarship, you get a scholarship, (laughs) you get a grant. But the membership and the certificates of the NSCA are just an incredible group of professionals that are all very passionate, awesome, wonderful, wonderful people to work with. So I really, really enjoy my job because I am still part of sport. I'm just on the backside, on the science side of helping athletes. So I'm still here, but just in a very different way. 
I do have to ask though, I mean, do you still lift on a regular basis? Cause we're video chatting right now and you lift up your arms and I just see your veins. Like it's awesome. I'm like, Oh man, she is still in very good shape. I, I am still active, but I don't lift. So I, I like to hike. I walk, I do little things, but I mean, if I get three 30 minute, you know, half hour sessions a week, I'm lucky. I, I can go weeks without working out, but I'm still active. I'm healthy. That's my focus now is my health. I think that would be a hard crossover because like for me, it's hard to get to the pool. And if you're like not in great shape, you can't just show up and go to the pool. Like it's just hard. You can't flip around. <laughs> yeah. like you can't make a flip. You'll probably land on your neck. You know, not a good thing, but like lifting, you can still go in there and dabble. And I would imagine like it might be hard if you're in there and it's like getting easier again and you're getting back. Like I would, <laughs> I would imagine, yeah, of course, I, this is me who came back in my forties to dive again. I get sucked in easy, apparently. Maybe you don't. <laughs> no, I, I do. It's a dangerous, slippery slope. <laughs> I can touch a barbell. I can do squats, but the two lifts that we do in competition, the snatch and the clean and jerk, I know if I put a weight on the bar, I'm either going to be like, oh my gosh, I'm so weak. I need to get stronger. Or I'm just going to feel really sorry for myself about how weak I am now. <laughs> so it's again, slippery slope. I try not to do it. I haven't done it in a very long time. That's so, oh, that's so funny. I love it. I love, I love hearing how we're all trying to like be different now. <laughs> you know, it's fun. Yes. Cool. Well, Carissa, can we follow you online or is there a link to the foundation you're working with where people can either donate or look for grant opportunities or things like yeah. that? Yeah. So uh, nsca.com forward slash foundation to learn about what we have to offer. Even with the NSCA, if you're interested in becoming certified or finding out more about what we do and becoming a member, nsca.com. And then to follow me on Instagram, my Instagram is Carissa, C-A-R-I-S-S-A underscore O-L-Y underscore 2008. I post some fun stuff on there, but primarily I think lots of pictures of my kids being a proud <laughs> mom. And I have a, a famous elf on the shelf that I have a lot of followers for. Oh, um, really? Like that's a separate account? No, that's on my account, but okay. I have a lot of oh. uh, a lot of shenanigans and stuff oh, with, okay. with people. So well, I need some um, good ideas. So yeah. So <laughs> if, if anybody has any questions or anything about anti-doping, the National Strength and Conditioning Association, or Elf on the Shelf, you can <laughs> please message me. I'm I'm happy to, you know, to chat with you. You are the complete package for sure. And uh, man, I hope one day we get to meet up in person again. Maybe we can have a redo on the uh, arm wrestling contest. But I'm definitely in worse shape than I was then. So I don't think that's going to end well for me. <laughs> love it. Love it. Awesome. Carissa, thanks for coming on and sharing your story with us and um, just, yeah, inspiring and empowering people. We appreciate you. Well, thank you for having me and allowing me to spread the word and talk about all things retirement and weightlifting. Thank you so much for tuning in today. And please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our show. This allows us to keep bringing on amazing guests and it also helps other athletes to find this show. Make sure to check out the show notes to follow us on social media and learn more about our awesome guest. To hear all of our amazing episodes, head on over to thepursuitofgold.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Pursuit of Gold is proud to be a Podigy production. That's all for now. Make sure to tune back in next week.